If you can try, I want you to imagine being born blind. You've never seen anything with your own eyes. Things like light and color have only ever been explained to you, but never experienced. One day you undergo an experimental new surgery to restore your sight, and it works. So for the first time ever, you open your eyes and you can see. Family members there with you, they quickly rush you outside of the hospital to see the world around you for the first time. But it happens to be nighttime, so you get your first look at the world. Things are still dark, colors are muted. Nevertheless, what you see is still breathtaking. You look up, you catch your first glimpse of the stars, these tiny little specks of light in the sky. Then your loved one tells you, just wait till the moon rises. Not long thereafter, you see the moon rising up over a hill, happens to be a full moon, and suddenly the night sky becomes brighter. You can see objects further away. You stare at the moon itself, you behold its radiance. Whoever heard of such a thing, this floating glowing orb in the sky, but, but here it is. But then again, a, a family member says to you, you still haven't seen anything yet. Just wait till the sun rises. I mean, it's not like you're going to go to sleep. This is your first time seeing. You're going to stay up and see everything you can. So you wait. The sky starts getting brighter and, and brighter. Gradually, the stars fade away, and even the glow of the moon is eventually put out. The horizon starts filling with colors you've never seen before, And then you you catch your first glimpse of the sun. You've been told the sun is like this great ball of fire in the sky, but that's really an understatement. Its light is brilliant. It's literally blinding. You find you you can't even look at it for very long. You're going to go blind again. It hurts. But you can see the sun's power in the vastness of its illumination. The whole world around you has been lit up and illumined by this one sun. Now, I bring up this little imaginary scenario because it's, it's a good way to think about God's revelation to the world. The world in sin lay in darkness, and all of us in it were blind. But God was going to change that. He called the people to himself, first Israel, and he opened their eyes to behold him. And then he also gave them his light. He started to share with them the light of his revelation that they might know him. And that happened first with the prophets, So you can think of the prophets like the stars in the night sky. They revealed little glimpses of the glory of God. Individually, they didn't give off much light, but put them all together and you get quite a constellation of God's revelation. God used these prophets to begin to reveal the light of his word to the world. They've been like Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah, Elisha, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. But of them all, one was greatest by far. One prophet stood out so much that he's more like the moon in his contribution. And so do you know who it is? Do you know who was the greatest prophet of all before Christ? The answer is John. John the Baptist. John the Baptist does not immediately come to our mind because we associate him with the New Testament, but he lived entirely in the Old Covenant era. He was the last of the Old Testament, Old Covenant prophets. And Jesus himself said he was the greatest, not just greatest prophet. He was the greatest person to have ever lived to that time. Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, There has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. 
So let that sink in for a moment. How John outshines people like Moses and Elijah. It makes you wonder, hearing this huge claim about John, how could that be? What, what made John so great? How can it be greater than Moses, the mediator of Israel who carried down the Ten Commandments? How can it be greater than Elijah, the great prophet who healed the sick, raised the dead? What made John great? Did he perform many miracles? No, he did not perform a single miracle. Did he write profound revelation? He didn't contribute to the written word at all. What made him exceptional? Was he rich? No, he was dirt poor. Was he powerful? He was an outcast who lived in the desert. Was he an artist or a musician? No, he seemed to have no interest in the culture. Was he smart and intellectual? And he preached a very simple message for the common person. So what made John so great? The greatest of the prophets. And the answer is simply his service to Christ. His service to Christ. In Luke's gospel, we learn that John was called and chosen by God before he was even born. He was set apart from birth for this unique, special mission to serve as the forerunner to the Messiah. John was himself conceived supernaturally, not a virgin birth, but his mother Elizabeth was herself way past childbearing years. Also, Luke 1.15 says that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. It was God who named this child John. It was God who called him. It was God who commissioned him. And to this mission, John was entirely sold out. John took pains to tell people he was not the Messiah. He wasn't even fit to untie the sandal of the one coming after him. John never sought his own following. Wasn't trying to build his kingdom. Wasn't trying to spread the fame of his own name. Rather, in total obedience to God's commission, he was completely committed to serving this Christ, making ready the way of the Lord. He was happy to live in obscurity because it wasn't about him. It was about the one coming after him. There's this very short period where the ministries of John and Jesus overlapped, where they were both making disciples, baptizing people around the Jordan. But we learn in John chapter 3 that more and more people started leaving John the Baptist and started following Jesus. And that would infuriate most church planners today, only concerned with their own following. But John rejoiced at this, that people were leaving him to go follow Jesus. And he testified of Christ's ministry. He must increase, I must decrease. This is the greatness of John. He was just a total servant of Christ and his kingdom. The world thinks greatness comes by having power, exercising authority, commanding people to serve you. But Christ himself would later teach that the true greatness in his kingdom comes by serving, by laying down your life to serve others. And apart from Christ, what other greater servant of God was there but John? All of the prophets, you might say, in a way prepared the way of the Lord. But none like John, in magnitude and in proximity, he was the direct forerunner and the only prophet who got to witness and herald the sunrise, the dawning of the day of the Messiah. 
John touched greatness as none came closer to the Son. And this morning we get to witness that as we turn to Matthew chapter 3. So take your Bibles and open them with me to Matthew 3. So we resume our way through this gospel. We find that Matthew devotes an entire chapter to the ministry of John the Baptist and how it relates to Jesus. Matthew 1 and 2 gave us the birth narrative of Jesus. Now he's jumping us forward about 30 years to the formal ministry of Jesus. But, but there is no formal ministry of Jesus without first the ministry of John. Literally, all four Gospels begin their tale of the ministry of Jesus with the ministry of John. And likewise, in the book of Acts, Peter and Paul, they're preaching the gospel. They're relating the ministry of Jesus. Both of them begin with the baptism of John. When the apostles wanted to replace Judas and choose a new apostle, one of their main requirements was that the new guy had to have been there with them since the beginning, which was, they said, the baptism of John. John the Baptist was not an apostle, but they all recognized him as the last and the greatest of the Old Covenant prophets. The last one to pave the way of the Lord. And don't underestimate John's greatness. But you still have to get one thing straight. As great as John was, this text before us in Matthew 3, it's not strictly about John. Because as great as John was, like the moon... He was himself entirely eclipsed by the sun, Jesus, and rightly so. If you know a little bit about church history, have you ever heard the name Albert Magnus or Albert the Great? The chances are most of you, no, you've never heard of Albert Magnus. But have you heard the name Thomas Aquinas? A few more, you've heard Thomas Aquinas. He's, he was the greatest Christian scholar of the Middle Ages. But he's the reason you've never heard of Albert Magnus. Albert came right before him. He was a profound scholar, but Thomas came right after and just totally eclipsed him in church history, how great Thomas Aquinas was. And so it goes with Jesus and John. This is why we don't give John enough credit as the greatest apostle. He's just totally eclipsed by Jesus. But John wouldn't have it any other way. And going back to that opening analogy of a blind person seeing the, the stars and then the moon for the first time, as great as they are, They're really nothing compared to the sun. It's not even close. The sun's glory is is blinding. It banishes all other light. And so it goes with Christ's glory compared to all the prophets who came before him. In fact, when you think about it, the moon is brilliant, but it doesn't even give off its own light. It steals all of its light from the sun. All it does is reflect the light of the sun. And so in a way you can say it, it further glorifies the sun. It testifies of the true glory of the sun. And this too was like John. He knew his place, but was very happy to make ready and announce the sunrise, the coming of the son of God. We're going to learn about John's role in announcing the the sunrise this morning from Matthew 3 verses 1 through 6. John is the main subject of this text, but as we said, it's not really about him Just as he prepared the way for the coming of the Lord, so does this text. And so we're really going to find our four ways John prepared the kingdom sunrise. Four ways John prepared the kingdom sunrise. Let's begin with first, in John, the kingdom is preached. In John, the kingdom 
is preached. We'll read as we go, starting in verse 1, this new chapter. Matthew continues, and he says, Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. First time in Matthew's gospel, we're introduced to John the Baptist. Baptist just being an epithet for his most famous work. But Matthew uses this phrase, in those days, just to transition us forward from the infancy of Jesus now to his adulthood. And I got to say, one of the most intriguing mysteries of the gospels is what Jesus was like, what he did in his teens and 20s. But on this side of eternity, we will never know. We always jump right to his adult ministry. For now, though, the formal ministry of Jesus was about to begin, but that meant in God's plan, the formal ministry of John had to begin. And so it did. Matthew says, in those days, John the Baptist came. That, that term came, it really speaks more of a formal arrival or announcement. Like in chapter 2, the Magi came, they arrived at their appointed hour. And likewise, John shows up on the scene precisely when God determined for him to show up. Luke chapter 1, verse 80 says of John, right after his birth, it says, And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now that day has come. You might wonder, though, what, what led John to have this public preaching ministry in the wilderness and then to start baptizing people? Well, only in the, the gospel of John, the apostle John, not John the Baptist, but In John's gospel, we learn that John the Baptist himself later received a message from God. John recalls how the Lord told him, John 1.33, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. We learn in John's gospel, there's actually a whole other layer to the baptizing ministry of John. Not only was he preparing the people but he also helped serve to identify the Messiah. In God's design, John would come first. He would preach. He would make disciples. He'd gain a a pretty sizable following. Only after that, God would reveal Jesus first to John. John directly in his baptism. And then John himself would testify that he had found the Messiah. In Jesus, he would throw his weight and his authority behind Jesus as the Messiah. And this is how God would, in a sense, jumpstart Christ's own formal ministry. Like John the Baptist said in John 131 of Jesus, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. Probably don't recall this, but the apostle Andrew, the disciple, later apostle Andrew, and most likely John, the apostle John, were first disciples of John the Baptist. That's from John 1.40. But then John testified to them that he found Jesus. He's the Lamb of God. And after that, Andrew and presumably John, they left John the Baptist. They started following Jesus. The preaching and baptizing ministry of John was always meant to dovetail right into the preaching and baptizing ministry of Jesus. Now, here in Matthew 3, 1, we're just being introduced to John's ministry. In those days, he came. He came to do what? Notably, interestingly, John worked no signs and wonders. Unlike Jesus after him, his power was entirely in his preaching. He came to preach. 
The locale of his preaching, it says, was the wilderness of Judea. This was a barren desert region to the east of the Dead Sea, south of Jerusalem, a barren rocky land, deep ravines, some plunging 1,200 feet. This land is dry and barren and harsh. Few things grow. One time, David was fleeing either from Saul or from Absalom, and he wound up in this same desert, the Judean wilderness. That's when he wrote Psalm 63, and it helps make sense of his opening words. Psalm 63.1, he says, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He wrote that because he was in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This is the Judean wilderness. It seems like a pretty odd and unusual place for God to start announcing the nearness of the kingdom through John. But as we know, God's ways are not man's ways. John's wilderness ministry was strategic on many accounts. And for one, we know the wilderness theme is is a place of uh, testing and preparation. It was in a wilderness that Israel was prepared to enter the promised land. And it was in a wilderness that King David was prepared to, to be king. Here, John will prepare the hearts of the people to enter Messiah's kingdom. In addition, the train itself served to test and teach the people. At the time, true faith was not being found in the cities, not in Jerusalem, not at the temple. They had become vain and corrupt centers of dead religion. And the Messiah would not come to them as expected. Neither would his forerunner. His ministry would always take him to the least expected places. And, and so it goes with John. To go see John, you had to leave the cities. You had to leave the temple. You had to go out to a desolate place. Already that's saying something about the type of kingdom that he was announcing. It was not going to accord with popular Judaism at the time. And when you think about it, John's preaching locale was extremely seeker insensitive. It's a terribly inconvenient harsh and uncomfortable burden to journey into the wilderness just to hear this guy preach. But, but John didn't care. He did not come to give people comfort. Let the cost be high for people to get these words of life. Like the wilderness itself, that will test and sift out those who aren't serious, who don't really want it. In addition, if John's location was seeker insensitive and his message was super seeker insensitive. His message, it's always the same thing. Just repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's simple. It can always be summarized with one word, repent. It's very consistent. Whenever we see John preaching, it's always just repent. And later for Jesus, or Jesus for that matter, he likewise began preaching the same thing. Repent. The kingdom's at hand. Metanoeo, it's a word for repent. Meta, change, noose, the mind. Literally means a change of mind, but of course, that's not all the biblical notion of repentance signifies. It starts with the change of mind, but that's not where it ends. You start by changing your mind toward your sin. You see your sin as God sees it. It begins with this confession where you say the same thing about your sin that God says. You, you, you understand and recognize you, you're guilty. You're condemned before him, a holy God. 
But you can't stop there. You can't stop with just confession. King Saul confessed or acknowledged his sin, but he stopped short of true repentance. Next comes contrition, which is a genuine heartfelt sorrow for sin. You become grieved because of your guilt and your shame, your wrongdoing before God. And this too is necessary, but it's also not the end. Judas felt contrition and sorrow, but of course, also not unto true repentance. Repentance must then lead ultimately to conversion. Confession, contrition, conversion. Not in the salvation sense, but sometimes in the salvation sense. The word convert means to, to change direction, to make an about face. And this is the finish line of repentance where you, you change your ways. And instead of walking in the darkness, you come to Christ, you seek his forgiveness, and you turn. You sin no more. You leave your sin behind. You walk in the light. And so in all, John was calling people to repent, to convert, to change their ways. Why was this his main message? We'll come back to that later. But you can see how his message is not flattering. And to the world, this is intolerant. You can't, you can't call people out as sinners. You can't tell them to repent. That means they're in the wrong. You can't say that. that that's bigoted. That's hateful. Even some believers today would affirm that, you know, preaching repentance, that it seems unloving, unkind. That's not how you build a ministry. But nevertheless, John preached repentance because as we'll see shortly, that's how you make ready the way of the Lord. The message of repentance explicitly carries with it bad news that you are guilty. You are a sinner. You stand condemned before your God. All of us do. Who here is without sin? But to clarify, as Mark chapter 1 verse 4 does, he came preaching repentance, it says, for the forgiveness of sins. The good news is there is a God who forgives all your sin. He pardons the guilty. And that's what we need. And already this evokes Jesus, the one told just before in Matthew, this child born of a virgin who would come to do what? To save his people from their sins. Finally, the one has come who can make right that uh, good news promise. And so in the end, John really was a messenger of good news. Salvation can be found, but only for those who heed this message, who, who humble themselves over their sin and just repent. They have to make their hearts ready to receive the Lord. But those who refuse to repent, who cling to their sin, who in pride hold on to their self-righteousness, well, to them, John's message does become one of doom and condemnation. This kingdom of heaven's at hand, meaning it's near, it's come close. How has it come close? We'll see that a lot more in Matthew 4, but in short, the kingdom has come near in the presence of the king. The king of the king kingdom is here. The sun is about to rise on a new day. God's about to unleash his, his kingdom rule in the hearts of his people like never before. But only those who repent will have their blind eyes opened to behold it. And the rest will be left in darkness outside of this kingdom. Secondly now, in John the kingdom is prophesied. In John the kingdom is prophesied. A second way John 
calls in ushers, predicts, promises this coming kingdom sunrise. And John, the kingdom is prophesied. Let's read verse 3. Matthew goes on to quote a passage in Isaiah. He says, for, speaking of John, for this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet. When he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. You can flip back to Isaiah chapter 40 if you want to see this for yourself. And several times in Matthew's gospel already, he's connected various aspects of Christ's coming to the Old Testament, to prophecy, the fulfillment of prophecy, and the appearance and the purpose of John the Baptist are no exception. John didn't come out of nowhere. He came out of the pages of the Old Testament. His role as a forerunner was foretold. And Matthew directly connects the dots between John's kingdom announcement and and this one spoken of in Isaiah's well-known prophecy. Isaiah 40 addresses Israel and their desolation. They've been exiled. They've been laid low because of their sin. God will restore them. He will visit them with his salvation. In verses 1 and 2, the message of doom is replaced with a message of hope. Isaiah verse 40, or chapter 40, verse 1, God says, A comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed. She has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The time of Israel and Judah being disciplined for their sin has come to an end. God will forgive and restore. He will visit them again with his glory. And so in light of this, he calls on his people to prepare for that day, to prepare for the coming of the Lord. How? Verse three says a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. All flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This this passage pictures Yahweh himself coming to his people to deliver them, to lead them in a procession back to the promised land. Side note, the fact that this was fulfilled by Jesus says Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. But the wilderness desert between Babylon and Palestine is probably in view. These people need to get ready for the time when their God will will visit them. And they do that by, by clearing a path in the wilderness. This relies on the ancient practice of kings as they were going to visit Another kingdom, a foreign land, they would often send their servants or representatives on ahead of them to make ready the way. Literally, they would clear the road of debris and fallen trees. They would fill potholes. They'd get rid of trash and rubbish. They would just make the way clear and presentable for the coming of the king. So that's what God wants Israel to do. But of course, he's not talking about them clearing an actual highway in the desert. And God doesn't need that. What they're truly being called to clear here is the highway to their hearts. They have to remove all the obstacles in their hearts that keep them from the Lord. How do we know that? How can we say that? 
Well, this is made clear in the correlating passages about the forerunner found in Malachi. If you want, you can turn to Malachi chapter 3 or Malachi chapter 4. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, after which comes 400 years of silence. Matthew really picks up where Malachi left off. You turn the page from Malachi, you get to Matthew. It's one flip of the page. But Malachi left things off in the Old Testament with the message of hope. Find your way to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. You know, before Yahweh's salvation would come, there would be a forerunner. Malachi 3, 1 says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. We still have a picture of Yahweh coming to save his people. But now this role of of clearing the way is attributed to a singular person, a, a forerunner, a messenger. This same figure is spoken of again in the closing two verses of Malachi, which also close out the Old Testament. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. In the end of his message, he says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, there's no doubt these words refer primarily to the second coming of Jesus. There is yet future another Elijah-type figure who will announce the arrival of the second coming of Christ. Just as Moses and Elijah show up at the transfiguration of Jesus, so most would see Moses and Elijah being really those two witnesses in Revelation 11 who are preparing and announcing the second coming of the Lord. Not literally, the Bible does not teach reincarnation, but God will raise up two future witnesses in the spirit and power of Elijah. And along those same lines, John the Baptist came first as the initial fulfillment of this promise, making ready the first coming of the Lord. You know, whereas on the one hand, John himself vehemently denied that he was Elijah in John chapter 1. But on the other hand, Christ himself confirmed that John was the initial Fulfillment of these forerunner promises, although the people didn't recognize him. That comes from Matthew 17. I'll read it to you, or you can flip back to Matthew anyway. Matthew 17, 10 through 13. This is right after the transfiguration where Moses and Elijah show up. But this verse shows that Jesus himself believed in a near and far fulfillment to the Elijah prophecy, and John was the near fulfillment. Matthew 17, verse 10. After the transfiguration, his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. He's still coming, future. Verse 12, But I say to you that Elijah already came. It's a both and. He he already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood they had spoken to them about John the Baptist. You know, to this day at Passover and other events, the Jews will reserve a cup at the table for Elijah, or they'll leave a seat open for Elijah. And that's based on these Old Testament prophecies. They, they know that before the Messiah comes, Elijah must come first. So they fix their hope for the Messiah on the forerunner. And that's not wrong. It's just that he already came. 
Luke chapter 1 verses 16 through 17 confirms that John came not as the literal reincarnation of Elijah, but it says he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And along those lines, how will he prepare the way of the Lord? Luke 1 17 says it's not by flattening out a literal piece of wilderness, but it says by turning the hearts of the fathers, by turning the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You can turn back to Matthew 3 now. We see how Matthew, by quoting Isaiah, is connecting some of these same dots. John is the first coming of this promised forerunner. One come in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready the way of the Lord. And he does that not by clearing a tract of wilderness, but by clearing the hearts of the people. This is why he preaches repentance, because that's how you remove roadblocks of unbelief before the Messiah comes. In a manner of speaking, John's work was to give the Lord ready access to the hearts of his people. We know that the primary roadblock to faith is what? Sin. Sin has a hardening effect and prevents one from coming to Jesus. This is why repentance is required for salvation. We're not saved by repentance. We're saved by faith. But apart from repentance, faith cannot genuinely form. It can't sprout. You can think of it this way. We know to be saved, the seed of the gospel must implant in the soil of your heart and come to life by faith, by way of analogy. But, but if your heart is like hard packed soil, like concrete, or if it's filled with debris and rocks and weeds, then the seed has no chance to take root, humanly speaking. But as a first order of business, you've got to clear the way. You've got to make it ready to receive the word. It's something we just did. Angel wanted to plant some wildflower seeds in our front yard, a little hard-packed area of, of field. And so I busted out the rototiller and just give the seeds a fighting chance, till up the soil, prepare it to accept the seed. And spiritually, it's the same. And, and your heart is prepared for faith in the gospel by repentance. You have to recognize and then get rid of all the spiritual debris in your life that is choking you. See your sin. And then repent, turn away from it. Then your heart will be truly ready to receive this Christ as your Lord, your master. Every time you don't repent, though, the soil of your heart becomes harder. Now say that again. Every time you sin and you don't repent, you cling to it. The soil of your heart becomes harder and harder. You think of the rich young ruler. This guy came to Jesus looking for salvation. And Jesus offered it to him, but he couldn't receive it. Why not? Because the soil of his heart had become hard packed by greed. And so he decided it was better to turn away from Jesus than turn away from his sin. Now, you must not make the same mistake. And just think and exert your own heart. What was blocking you? What, what prevents you from coming to faith? What sin have you been tolerating in your life that is slowly and secretly hardening you to the Lord and the things of the Lord. I pray your eyes are open. You identify it. You crucify it. You, you turn away from it and you turn to the Lord before it's too late. Let your own heart be prepared for the Lord. In John, the kingdom is preached. In John, the kingdom is prophesied. Thirdly now, 
in John, the kingdom is pictured. We must keep moving. Turn to verse 4, back in Matthew chapter 3. In John, the kingdom is pictured. Verse 4 gives this little description of John. It says, now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Here mention is made of the dress and the diet of John the Baptist. He wore, it says, a garment of camel's hair. Most likely just talking about a hide, a camel hide patched together. It had been a crude garment, but pretty fitting for living in the wilderness. It was all tied together by this leather belt. His diet was locusts and wild honey. Not exclusively, but it shows John was an austere man. He's committed to desert dwelling. And between, between catching these, these large grasshoppers or, or fighting a beehive, he, he was not living in the lap of luxury. He was roughing out a bare existence in the wilderness for all these years until the appointed time came to, to go public. But we wonder, like, why does Matthew even include this? Why does he even tell us about the diet and the dress of John the Baptist? We rarely, I think, if ever get a description of the dress of Jesus. So why the, the dress and the diet of John the Baptist? It seems odd, but it's not incidental. It's not meaningless background information. I think Matthew includes it for a couple of reasons. And for one, I think we find in John's image a faint echo of Elijah. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8 says Elijah was known for wearing a leather belt, this leather girdle, holding his garments together. And it says Elijah was a hairy man. Whether that refers to his own hair or wearing a hairy garment, we don't know for sure. But you get a little faint picture of Elijah in John. And in John's food, you can sense Elijah's own austerity. Elijah was another prophet, often living in the wilderness. Both of these men were stern and austere. They were not here to live a life of comfort and ease. But John's presentation, I think more so, also is meant to say something about the nature of the king and the kingdom that he's announcing. John was Christ's herald. The function of the herald is to go before the king to prepare the way and to announce the way. And since heralds represented the king, they most often in antiquity through the Middle Ages dressed in the finest clothes. They weren't dressed cheap. They were representing the king. They were dressed in the finest clothes and they led a procession, a lavish procession to reflect the king's own splendor. Think of the Old Testament, Queen Sheba coming to visit King Solomon. She is preceded by, it says, a retinue of camels carrying spices and gold and precious stones. It's what you'd expect from a visit of a king or a queen. Well, here comes Jesus, the Messiah, God's chosen one. He's the king of kings. He's coming. He's finally come to earth to deliver his people. John is his herald, the guy coming before. So who's John? What does he look like? He looks like like a peasant living in the desert. There's absolutely nothing impressive about John's presentation. To the contrary, it's kind of off-putting, even offensive. But as one commentator said, even the food and dress of John preach. Even his dress and his diet were part of the message he was sending. To prepare the way for this Lord, John was, was calling the people away from their dead religion, which had become entirely focused on externals. All these people cared about was appearing 
righteous before others. Looking good on the outside, but their hearts were far from God on the inside. And John came just, just showcasing in his message and his presentation, just the total opposite, that the externals don't matter. God is looking for true worshipers, and that is only going to be found in the heart, a clean heart. Just think of the contrast in attire between the scribes and the priests and John the Baptist, and it's staggering. I mean, the, the religious elite of Israel were known for these flowing robes, lengthened tasseled tassels and expensive belts. But here's John. This guy in the desert, he's covered by a patchwork of a camel hide. But again, the message is clear. The king that's coming doesn't care so much about your externals, your looks, even your deeds. Primarily, he's looking for pure hearts. Your deeds matter, but if they don't come from a pure heart, they're worth nothing. If you want entrance into his kingdom, your, your heart first and foremost, must be made right with God. Jesus would come thereafter, just as unassuming as John. He was not the king they expected, just like John was not the forerunner they expected. He did not bring the kingdom they expected. His kingdom would not be of this world and would not be recognized by the rich and the powerful and those wise in their own eyes. Rather, the only ones who who would see it were the poor, the meek, the brokenhearted. Their eyes would be open to see the sunrise and to believe. Not everyone was ready for this. Not everyone would go out to the desert to see John. But in God's timing and God's plan, his grace was stirring and many would. Many did respond to this call and go out to see him. So we can find, lastly, number four, in John, the kingdom is paved. In John, the kingdom is paved. He really did make ready hearts for the Lord. Verses 5 and 6. It says, Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. At the end of this opening passage, we're finally introduced to the practice that gave John his epithet, baptism. That's why he's called John the Baptist, not his last name. But his impact was huge. This, this grassroots mo- uh, movement swelled and gained momentum all by word of mouth. But people started hearing about this, this, this kind of crazy guy in the wilderness, but he, he speaks truth. More people hear about him and they just, we got to go see him. We have to hear, has a, has a prophet arisen in Israel after all these years? And more and more people go to see John in the wilderness by the Jordan. John worked no signs, but it was simply by his commanding and authoritative preaching that people understood God had sent another prophet. After 400 years, God was speaking again. He was speaking through John. And they were right. Not everyone was so happy about John's wilderness ministry. We will learn about those people next week. But scores of of ordinary Israelites were just compelled to go out to listen to John. They heard his announcement of the nearness of the kingdom. And they believed. They they were compelled. That led them to repent. They were convicted. We, We need to make our hearts ready for the Lord. 
They confessed their sin, that they were guilty. They had allowed sin to harden their hearts truly to the true ways of the Lord, just like their fathers. But as they repented and returned to God, they could be renewed. And so John baptized them in the Jordan for this renewal of life and commitment to the Lord. Many have wondered if John invented this ritual of water baptism, because you don't find it in the Old Testament, but it shows up and seems ordinary. But no, he did not invent it. Having its roots in Old Testament ceremonial cleansing, in between the Testaments, the Jews eventually started this practice of ritual cleansing for Gentiles converting to Judaism, entering the faith. And so it's called proselyte baptism. And so the Jews of John's day would have had some concept of baptism. This wasn't something brand new to them. But to them, it would have been seen as a symbolic bath that prepared unclean Gentiles to enter the clean people of God. This was seen as a one-time legal act signifying a rejection of one's former pagan Gentile ways and acceptance into the Jewish community. So it wasn't necessarily new, but what makes John's baptism new and so stunning is that this was being applied to Jews. What need did a Jew have for this baptism that they're already part of the people of God? As we'll see in the following text, some were objecting, saying, we have Abraham for our father. Like, we, we don't need conversion. We're, we're already Jews. They don't need to repent or change or turn from their old life. Their old life, they're already part of the people of God. They thought all they had to do to enter the kingdom was just wait. And eventually they'll get there because they're, they're already in. But no, as Jesus himself will teach, it's only one way to enter this kingdom. It's not by first birth. It's by second birth. You have to be born again. A rebirth of the heart must take place. And your Jewish heritage, the law, rituals, temple, none of that contributes to the second birth at all. That, that new birth only comes from God by his grace through faith to those who repent. And so put together then, the message behind John's baptism was clear, which is why the scribes and Pharisees hated him as well. But the message was that the Jews were just as unclean as the Gentiles. The Jews needed their hearts prepared for the coming of the king just as much as the Gentiles. All need this, that there's simply no place in Christ's kingdom for those who've not had their hearts made new, whether Jew or Greek. All must renounce their former ways, their ways of sin, their ways of self-righteousness. Whatever you were clinging to, to save you, to, to justify you before God, it, it won't work. You have to abandon it. Christ is the only way. This is the same realization the Apostle Paul came to. He used to cling to his deeds, his self-righteousness, his badges of honor as a Jew. But as his blind eyes were opened to the glory of Christ, he realized, oh wait, that, that's all for nothing. It's faith alone in, in this Christ. And Paul relates this in Philippians 3, 8 through 9. He says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis 
of faith. That's the only way. It's always been the only way. And John was making ready that way by his preaching. You know, this message scandalized most Jews. Their pride was too great. They refused to believe it. And it it still scandalizes people today. They they don't want to face their sin and their guilt before God. They they don't want to admit that they're lost, they're blind. They're sitting in the darkness. All they have waiting is, is eternal darkness. But listen, John came to announce, you don't have to. The sunrise has come. The son of God has come. When John himself was born, this was prophesied of him. Just listen to this. Luke chapter 1, 76 through 80. It was said of John, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the good news now is that we, we don't have to wait for this any longer. The sun has already risen. The sun has already come. Christ the Savior, he died on the cross and rose from the dead to put away all of our sins that we might be forgiven in God's mercy. The sun is, is shining. Darkness has been banished. And only by going to him through repentance and faith can you be forgiven and saved and reconciled and find those ways of peace. Today, you need to heed the ministry of John. You need to prepare your own hearts to receive the Lord if you haven't already and to receive John's Lord. You do that by repenting and believing today. Do that today. The sun is shining. You just simply must cry out to God and he will open your blind eyes to behold its glory. Let's pray. Our glorious God, we, we, we call on you to do just that, to open our eyes to your glory, the glory of your son, Christ. Lord, we have to pray if there's any here with us this morning by your providence and their eyes are blind. They still have not seen their sin or seen Christ's salvation that even right now you would open the eyes of their heart. Let let the scales fall from their eyes that they might see that the son has come. The only answer to life and death that's found in Christ. He's, He's here. He died. He rose. And now he shines. May you bring faith to their hearts. Cause them to repent. If there are any here, Lord, this morning who have allowed their hearts to be hardened by sin and have lived a hardened life, May today be that, that last day where you, you break their hearts. The same sun that hardens the clay, melts the wax. You can still show your mercy and call them to yourself. We pray today is that day, Lord, that they would heed what they have heard, this message of John announcing the sun. But we thank you that we don't have to wait. The sun has come and we get to, to bask in his glory for those who believe. We thank you for that, Lord. And we pray you, you likewise help us. From, from hardening our hearts again, from letting sin deceive us and, and keep us away from enjoying the sun. May we not close our eyes to it. Help us to keep our eyes open, to behold his glory, to now walk in the light as he himself is in the light and to tell others that the sun has come. May we now be like John, reflect his ministry and, and herald, announce the sun has risen, it's in Christ and he's the only way. In Christ's name we pray, amen.